Amen. You can go ahead and have a seat. My name is Luke. I am one of the pastors here. Want to again say welcome to you. Hopefully, people have said welcome to you several times already, but we're really glad that you have decided to come on a colder than we would prefer Sunday morning. Um, this is, as you've heard already, a historic day in the life of our church. There are times and moments in life and maybe in organizations when certain days stand out from other ones. Uh, I can think in my own life, April 19th, 1992 was the day I was born. Also Easter Sunday. Uh, fun fact, I've said for a number of years, uh, we celebrate the birth or the, the resurrection of Jesus and I was also born makes that day incredible from start to finish. Uh, May 31st of 2014, I got married. Uh, January 28th of 2020, I became a dad. January 31st of 2022, I became a girl dad. Uh, and August 29th of 2021, as an organization, we launched this church. And here we are, March 27th, 2022, where we again get to put a little bit of a stake in the ground as a day that separates itself from some others to say this is our first baptism uh, as a church. We don't normally have a tank of water up here. Uh, so if this is your first time here or first time in a while, this is also the first time for this. And so we want to welcome you to this historic day. Uh, we exist as a church. What we say is that our mission is to lead more people to be more like Jesus. Uh, we think of that in two different phases. One, we want as many people as possible in on the grace available to them in Jesus. And then after that, we want people to step forward in the flourishing life of becoming like Jesus. That's our mission, a baptism service allows us to celebrate the mission that we got from Jesus going forward. Uh, you're gonna see real people who are getting baptized here, declaring to this room and to the world that they have decided to put their faith in Jesus, to wash away everything that's broken in the past, in their present, and in the future. And they're also communicating to us as a room that they have decided to follow Jesus from this point forward, to become like him with the rest of their life. And so we get to celebrate as a church. One of the reasons we have baptism in the context of a local church is so that it's not just an individual celebration, but we as a local church get to participate in that. And so we're gonna turn it loose a little bit. I hope it gets a little bit wild, a little bit rowdy. Uh, almost nothing is off limits uh, when, when the baptisms come. And so you're definitely invited into that. Now, before we get there, uh, there are some things to talk about. And so if you have a Bible, this is a good time to grab it. I want to catch you up a little bit about where we were last week, just because the story kind of continues from last week. In the same context, we're going to continue to move this forward. Last week, we talked about a woman in Matthew 26 who did some radical things at the feet of Jesus. And these radical things were designed for her for even just a moment to communicate at the feet of Jesus how much she loves and appreciates who he is and what he's doing. And on the heels of that story, in these exact same moments in Matthew 26, the story of Jesus is gonna continue. There's a lot to happen in the story of Jesus still, even though he is hours away from being arrested, he is hours away from ultimately being whipped and spit on and mocked and then put up on a cross, there's still a lot to happen 
between the woman at his feet who is not named in Matthew 26 doing radical things to demonstrate her love and appreciation and Jesus ultimately being arrested. There's a lot that happens in that window. And so where we're going to be for a lot of this morning is Matthew 26 and 27. So if you have a Bible, that's the best place to turn. If you don't have a Bible, uh, this is something we say every single week. There is a stack of Bibles on the uh, table in the lobby that you can just grab one of those on your way out. In fact, we put multiple Bibles on that table so that we can communicate to you we have plenty and you can grab one and not even feel bad about it. Uh, that's free. You don't have to sign your name and address away. Just grab one on your way out. We would love for you to have one of those. But that's where we're going to be, Matthew 26 and 27 uh, for most of this morning. A couple years ago, um, I, I was working for a church and I got this email that as, as I read the email, it seemed like pretty casual. It was this guy who I knew. I didn't have a relationship with him, but we knew of each other. Uh, and he sent me this casual email like, hey, hey it, you know, if you have some time in the next couple of weeks, I would love to sit down and get together. And so maybe this is bad email habits, but I read that and thought, uh, I'll get back to that in some time, just like buried it somewhere in the inbox um, because it didn't seem like a pressing issue and I didn't have a lot of answers. So I just kind of like moved on. Uh, about 15 minutes later, I get a follow-up email from him and he says, you know what, I, I think I didn't communicate very well. I don't want to like casually get to know you and have a conversation. There's something going on in my life and I would love to talk to you about it and for you to speak into it. And then he goes to describe this story. At this point in his life, he was a senior in college. He was right before spring break and he was dating this girl. It was getting very serious. I mean, this was his boo. This, this, this girl was everything to him. Uh, she was about to go uh, on a trip for spring break with her family. They had invited him. It, it was all set up. He had the ring purchased. They, they've done the ring shopping, picked out the ideal ring for her. He's going to go on spring break with the family, and then he's going to propose on spring break. It's this big moment. It's special. This relationship is developing. It's incredible. And a couple days before spring break, he decides to go out with the boys. And while he's out with the boys, he starts making some poor decisions, like little poor decisions, and those start to increase, and they start to multiply, and he finds himself late in the night with another girl that he doesn't know, and alcohol's playing a significant role, and he doesn't really know what's going on, and he just continues to make poor decisions. The next morning, he gets up with this girl next to him that he doesn't know very well, and he's now sitting in a bed thinking to himself, what have I done? Like, like this is an absolute nightmare. And so he, he gets out of that room, he gets out of the apartment and he's just starting to be flooded with like shame and guilt. And like, what do I, what do, I do now? Who do I talk to about this? And the guilty feelings are starting to multiply. And so he says, at the very least, what I have to do is I have to go track down my girlfriend and let her know what happened. And so he, he tracks her down. He, he tells her the story. She's obviously devastated. Uh, they break up right there on the spot. Spring break is canceled. He's got to now pay for the trip. He's not going on. He's got to call his family and let them know why he's not going on spring break. Now everybody's asking questions. And he sends me this email to say, I need to talk because I have no idea what to do now. 
And we sat down at this public coffee shop and he's sitting in front of me, absolutely broken. And I'll never forget the question that he asked me. He says, what do I do when I've just made the worst mistake of my life? I didn't have to convince him that he had made bad decisions. He wasn't trying to blame it on the boys. He wasn't trying to blame it on the alcohol. What he was doing was saying, I have screwed up in the greatest way I can possibly describe. What do I do now? And the answer to that question, there's at times you can maybe get to that question of what do I do when I've made the biggest mistake of my life. And I think the answer to that question comes with life and death consequences. And, and you may think I'm overstating that, but I think life and death, even here and spiritually for eternity. And, and that's where we're going here in Matthew 26, because there are two people we're going to highlight who ask that same question internally. What do I do when I have just made the biggest mistake of my life? Where do I go? Who do I talk to? I have no idea. There comes to be a decision time that holds life and death. And so that's where we're going to be here. I'm going to start reading Matthew 26, verse 14. And before I get there, let me just trust me on this, that what I come with is nothing resembling bad news. Trust me this morning, I have nothing but good news ahead, but on the heels of this inspiring demonstration of love and appreciation from this woman at the feet of Jesus. On the heels of that, the story continues in verse 14. Here's what it says, Matthew 26, verse 14. Then one of the 12, the one called Judas Iscariot, he went to the chief priests and asked, what are you willing to give me if I deliver Jesus over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver, and from then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over. Uh, Here's the problem. The chief priests are the religious rulers in, in that religious world. They have a ton of power and authority, and they hated Jesus. They wanted nothing to do with Jesus. He was enemy number one, because what came with Jesus was him exposing some things in them that not only did they not want to see personally, they didn't want other people to see it either. What Jesus did was he exposed in the chief priests this desire to have reputation that's not righteousness, a desire to have a projection of love and care for people that at the very core, there wasn't a love and care for people. They just wanted people to think that that was true. Jesus started pressing on what it looked like to be welcomed into the family of God and how do you live in the family of God in a healthy way. Jesus was starting to bring things that were opposed to the chief priests and the rulers religiously in that day. And so they hated Jesus, which every time I read this, it always brings me to a point because I think this is so helpful for us to know, just if you're a follower of Jesus, that you can even deal with being exposed in one of two ways. One, you can try to murder the thing that's exposing what doesn't look like Jesus in you, or you can see what's exposed and actually address that and become more like Jesus. But it's easy for us to say, man, this stuff is boiling to the surface. I don't really like what I'm seeing, and so I'm gonna kill the thing exposing it. This is the pathway of the chief priests. Jesus is exposing things. We don't want that. Let's kill him. The problem is, The crowds and the people around Jesus loved Jesus. 
They wanted more of him, not less of him. And so the chief priests are now in a little bit of a pickle because they want to kill Jesus. But there's so many people by the thousands and more pouring into the city that love Jesus and want to elevate him to power that for them to step into those crowds and try to pull Jesus out of them in handcuffs is not going to be a friendly environment. They've got a problem because the crowds knew Jesus as somebody who genuinely loved people. They knew him as a, as a healer, a feeder, a guider. They saw him change people's lives. They watched him care for the people that the systems and the religions and the governments have pushed to the side. Jesus was here for people and he loved people. The crowds knew that and they wanted more of Jesus. This is the problem that the chief priests are faced with, but here steps Judas. One of the 12, it tells us multiple times, Judas is inside the close friendship of Jesus. There's 12 men who've been invited into close proximity to Jesus as friends and as followers. Judas is one of those. So because of his close proximity, the chief priests trust Judas to get something done that they cannot do without his help. Like a disease, he is working to destroy and to kill from the inside. So they count out for him 30 pieces of silver, which is about a month's worth of work. And that's all Judas needed to now be on the inside of friendship with his eyes open and opportunities available to see Jesus away from the crowds so that there could be a line for him to be arrested without riots. And that moment finally comes in verse 47. It's often that Jesus, everywhere he went in public, he was surrounded by the crowds. They loved him. They wanted to hear him teach. They wanted to see him heal people. They wanted to be fed by Jesus. He's constantly around crowds. But there is a moment here where Jesus enters into a quiet and into a dark garden late. This is as good of an opportunity as Judas is going to get. And so he takes it. It's late. It's dark. Jesus is in the secluded place. Verse 47 of Matthew 26, here's what it says. While Jesus was still speaking, while he was talking to his close friends and his followers, Judas, one of the 12, arrived. With him, a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Verse 48, now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man, arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, greetings, rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, do what you came for, friend. The man stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. Here is, Jesus, is Judas, and he's, he's done it. They, they needed him to play a role for him to get in proximity to Jesus, for them to get a line that didn't involve riots and crowds. If they could just get their hands on Jesus, their plan that they've been planning and preparing for for weeks and months could be forwarded. They just need a line to Jesus and he's done it. Judas has provided that and there's no turning back. There's no reversing it. There's no wiggling out of his role in the process. It's done. And the consequences of that will continue to play out in front of Judas and in front of the world. Now, now this is the biggest mistake of his life. And that's not me like throwing words into his mouth or feelings into his heart. Judas comes to that coffee shop moment and says, now what do I do when I've made the biggest mistake 
of my life. I want to take you to the moment where Judas feels the coffee shop moment of what do I do now? He comes to decision time. Matthew 27, verse 1, the story continues. Maybe the page from where you're at right now. Here's what it says early in the morning. All the chief priests and the elders of the people, they made their plans to have Jesus executed. So they they bound him, they led him away and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. Like they, they finally have Jesus. So the plan can continue to be moved forward. Judas can't enter in and change anything. He's, he's already been used. He's already played his role. Verse three, when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse. He returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. Like, like even the gain of his decision-making, it just doesn't even taste sweet anymore. Like the money that he gets from this is just, it's bitter and he wants to return it Verse four, I've sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What's that to us? They replied, that's your responsibility. He's just made the biggest mistake of his life and he goes back into the situation to see if he can, if he can turn it over, if he can somehow wiggle out of the consequences, but for nothing. They've used Judas to play this particular role. He's made the biggest mistake of his life. He can't overturn it. He can't fix it. He can't pretend it didn't happen. He can't pretend it wasn't him. He can't deflate the consequences. He's just made that mistake. So what do you do now? You feel the weight of the biggest mistake of your life. Where do you go from now? Now, before we continue, before we get to the decision-making of Judas. I want to bring you into another story because in this text, woven in the story of Judas the betrayer is another story of somebody who made an equally life-changing poor decision. Somebody else who got to that coffee shop moment and said, what do I do now that I have made the biggest mistake of my life? Where do I go from here? In this same text, there's a man named Peter, another close friend and follower of Jesus, who has declared unfailing loyalty to Jesus, even though Jesus has said to Peter, hey, you know how Judas is going to betray me? Guess what? You're not going to just betray me one time, not even two times, but three times. And Peter steps into that space and says, no way. Like unfailing loyalty. I'm not going anywhere regardless of what happens to me. In fact, let me show you exactly what he says in Matthew 26, 33, he says, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Even if everybody leaves you, even if everybody betrays you, even if everybody stops following you, I will not be one of those people. Woven in the story of Judas is the story of Peter. Promising a level of loyalty to Jesus based upon his willpower and what he thought he believed about Jesus. But let's let's see how it plays out. Matthew 26, verse 69. Judas has already done his work. Jesus has already been arrested. Verse 69, it says, Now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him. You also were one with Jesus of Galilee, she said. 
but, but he denied it before them all. Like, I don't know what you're talking about. Now, to defend Peter a little bit, there are certain environments and circles and situations where being a follower of Jesus publicly is incredibly dangerous. To say, I am a follower of Jesus, you are correct, and when you see me around Jesus, I am somebody who have dedicated my life to following him. That becomes dangerous. He has the opportunity to say, you know what, I, I am a follower of Jesus, and he backs out of it. Verse 71, then he went out to the gateway when another servant girl saw him and said to the people there, this, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. And he, he denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, surely you're one of them. Your accent gives you away. Like we know you were with Jesus. Nobody, nobody's questioning this anymore. We know you were with Jesus. And then he began to call down curses. Expletives are flying. And he swore to them. I, I don't know the man. And immediately a rooster crowed, which Jesus had predicted. And then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And here comes the coffee shop moment. He went outside and he wept bitterly. This, this broke him. can imagine the intensity of the weight his mistake is just only adding more and more as he's, as he's able to think back and say, wait, Jesus even, even told me this was going to happen and I promised it wouldn't. And yet here I am, make the biggest mistake of my life. What do I do from here? He, along with Judas, he betrayed Jesus. He, along with Judas, has made the worst mistake of his life. And, and here's what it says about this moment in another book of your Bible from an eyewitness account of this. Because I think it adds weight. Here's what it says. I would just suggest, if you're a note taker, you can just write this down. Luke 22, 61 and 62. Here's what it says. Jesus turned in this moment and looked straight at Peter. Like Peter has already betrayed Jesus once, and then he had another opportunity, betrayed him a second time, and then he had another opportunity, betrayed Jesus a third time. And right in that moment, Jesus and Peter make eye contact. It's likely at this moment, Jesus has already been beaten quite a bit. He's already probably bleeding from the head and being whipped around and he's in chains and he's being dragged somewhere else and Peter betrays Jesus and then they make eye contact. Then Peter remembered the words that Jesus had spoken to him before the rooster crows today. You will disown me three times. He went outside and he wept bitterly can imagine this moment that not only is he feeling the weight of the greatest mistake of his life, but now he knows that Jesus also saw it. And Jesus also knows, and it was at Jesus's expense, that this is a nightmare for him. He can't overturn it. He can't fix it. He can't pretend it didn't happen. He can't pretend it wasn't him. He can't deflate the consequences. He's just made the biggest mistake of his life. And so what is he going to do now? Hours from each other in history, these events take place. Woven together in history are these two people who have betrayed Jesus, made the worst mistake of their life. And both of them get to a place where they feel the weight of that. 
They feel the consequences of that. They wish they could change that. They maybe even feel disappointed in themselves. I can think back to moments where I've been here where I could understand how somebody else could be disappointed with me because I was disappointed with me. Or, or how maybe there was, a, there was a holy God who was looking down on my life. Certainly he's disgusted with me because I feel disgusted with me. Certainly he's upset because I'm upset. I don't like who I am. I don't like who I'm becoming. This is the moment Judas and Peter get to. I've just made the worst mistake of my life, and now it's decision time. What do I do from here? Where do I go? Who do I call on? Who do I talk to? The answer to that question comes with life and death consequences. I want to bring you into the story for us to see what is the decision that they made from this point, from the lowest point in their life. What is the decision that they made and where did it launch them into? Let's first talk about Judas. Now, we've already read some of this, but I want to reread it and finish what this story leads us to. Now, this is obviously in the Bible, but I know that what comes with the story of Judas is an absolute tragedy, and this could come with maybe some trigger points or some really difficult and hurtful memories for some of you. And so I just want to like caution and warning that where this is going to go with Judas is, is not a, a place other than extreme darkness. But here's where he goes. Verse 3 of Matthew 27. Let's enter back in when Judas, who had betrayed him, he saw that Jesus was condemned. His mistake has been made. He can't overturn it. He was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I've sinned, verse 4, he said, and, and I've betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us? They replied, that's your responsibility. And, and here's the decision point of verse 5. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. And he went away and hanged himself. The, the, the money that he had gotten from his mistake just doesn't mean anything to him anymore. He's at the lowest place he could possibly be. He doesn't like who he sees in the mirror. He doesn't think there's a way to redeem his mistake, to, to get back onto a path that's anywhere near alignment with where he should be. The only thing that makes sense to Judas in this moment is just to, to end his life and to maybe end the pain, and to escape the shame, and to escape the guilt. Like if I could just die, I could get out from under this mistake somehow. This is the decision that he makes. He feels like he, he knows he can't overturn it. He can't fix it. He can't pretend it didn't happen. He can't pretend it wasn't him. He can't deflate the consequences that are continuing to play out in front of him. So the only response that he thinks makes sense in this moment is to just end it all, escape all of the shame and the pain and end his life. And, and this is a tragedy. This is where the lowest point of decision-making can lead people. What do you do when you've made the greatest mistake in your life? This is an extreme answer to that question for some. But it doesn't have to be 
the answer for all. I want to take you to Peter's response. Uh, we're going to be in John 21 just, just for a moment. And so you, you have a couple options. You could just allow me to take you there and read from it. You could turn there yourself. It's a couple books to your right in your Bible. If you have a device, feel free to scroll there. I want to take us to John 21 because this kind of finishes off the story of Peter. From his lowest moment in his decision time, where does he go from here? Now, immediately what happens in the life of Peter is Jesus is arrested and he's ultimately killed. And so Peter doesn't know what to do other than just going back to the profession he had before Jesus. He he was a fisherman. And so Jesus has died. He's confused. He's really broken. He's feeling guilt and shame. And just, he just goes back to his day job. And, and I, can, I can even enter into like his mind, I feel like, at times. Like if it was me, I would be feeling things like, like constantly asking, like, what have I done? Or constantly feeling like, how can I call myself a follower of Jesus and at the same time do these types of things? Like, how am I supposed to step forward in my role as a follower of Jesus in the mission Jesus came here to institute and at the same time be this type of person? How can both of those things be true? And his, his initial response was just like, I, I need to get out from under it. Let me just go back to fishing. I don't know what to do with my life. But there's a moment where resurrected Jesus shows up on the beach and Peter's out in the boat. And, and let me bring you into that situation. Verse seven of John 21, it says then, the disciple who Jesus loved said to Peter, hey, it's Jesus. Like Peter's made the worst mistake of his life. He's living in shame. He's living in guilt. And it's at the hands of Jesus. He's the one who betrayed Jesus. And he's in a boat off of shore. And somebody says to him, Peter, there is Jesus. There he is. And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is Jesus, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it off and he jumped in the water and swam to him. Once he realized it was the same Jesus that he betrayed, once he realized it was the same Jesus who saw his greatest mistake, who was a part of his greatest mistake, once he saw him, he without hesitation jumped out of the boat to swim to this man not wait for the opportune moment, not put his head down in shame, not feel awkward because of the situation he had created, jumped from the boat and swam to the person named Jesus, who he had betrayed and who he had offended. There became a decision point. And he swam to him because he knew Jesus enough that in, on the heels of his greatest mistake, Jesus is still the one to swim to. Whether this is your first time swimming to him or your millionth time, what Peter knew is that when I make the greatest mistake of my life, when it comes decision point and I'm feeling the weight of that, I'm sitting in the coffee shop broken, what do I do from here? Peter swims to Jesus. This is how he responded. What do you do in the darkest moments of your life? 
What do you do when you've just made the worst mistake of your life? Judas and Peter made the same mistake at the same time in history. They both felt the crushing weight of their sin. They both wanted to fix it. They both wanted out of it. They both had a decision about how they were going to handle it and how they were going to move forward. But their decision time led them to radically different outcomes. And it's because Peter had to believe some things about Jesus that Judas didn't. Peter saw some things in Jesus that led his response to be radically different. Peter had to believe that we are never too far gone. He he had to believe that. In your lowest, darkest, loneliest moments and mistakes, you are never too far gone. You are never too far from God. You aren't too dirty. You aren't too unworthy. You're never so good that you don't need Jesus and never so bad that you can't have him. Peter had to believe that you and I, in our lowest and greatest mistakes, are never too far gone. Peter had to believe that Jesus is eager to extend grace. This is Jesus, the friend of sinners. If Jesus was here just to befriend all of those who would never betray him and live perfect lives, he would be a lonely man. He is the friend of sinners, which is all of us. He doesn't begrudgingly give grace. He doesn't roll his eyes. He doesn't say like, we're here again. Why do you keep making these choices? He's not exhaling in disappointment, asking what's wrong with you and how you could continue to make such bad choices. He begs us to hand him our sin and hand him our shame. He is eager to welcome you in and exchange all of that for grace and forgiveness and joy and peace. Peter had to believe that we're never too far gone. He had to believe that Jesus is eager to extend grace. And he had to believe that Jesus loves us and wants us. His love for you is not dependent on your performance. And thank God it isn't. Because if his love for us was dependent on our performance, we would have fallen out of that loving relationship a long time ago. Yet Jesus loves us, and we can't change that. He wants us. He doesn't want a future version of you. He doesn't want a cleaner version of you. He doesn't want you when you figure it all out and start making good choices. He loves you now. He wants you now. He loves you and wants you in your lowest place. He loves you and wants you in your greatest mistakes. He had to believe that we're never too far gone. He had to believe that Jesus is eager to extend grace. And he had to believe that Jesus loves us and wants us as we are sitting in this room this morning. He had to believe that. And, and I told you that I don't come here with, with anything but good news. And the good news that we have is that this was the mission of Jesus all along to bring redemption to people who made great mistakes. This was the mission of Jesus. Judas was the mission. Peter was the mission. We, in our greatest mistakes, we are the mission. This is what Jesus was all about. What makes the story of Judas such a tragedy is that it didn't have to end like this. When he's in his coffee shop moment, feeling the weight of his mistakes and understanding there's no way of backing out of this. 
He also could have swam to Jesus' feet and found grace and found mercy. What makes this such a tragedy is at the feet of Jesus, he could find compassion and kindness and tenderness and gentleness. He could have come back to Jesus and found forgiveness because he's never too far gone and Jesus is eager to extend grace. can swim to him. This didn't have to be the story of Judas, and it doesn't have to be our story. Like Jesus is waiting on the shore with open arms and a nice smile of compassion and grace and forgiveness waiting to surround you. What do you do when you've made the worst mistake of your life? You swim to this man. You get to him. He's the one that can heal. Not fix all the consequences. He's the one that can heal you and fix your brokenness and bring you into redemption and give you forgiveness and give you satisfaction and give you righteousness before the Father. Whether this is your first time, swim to this man. Whether this is your millionth time and you feel like every day you wake up, you're going to have to swim to him all over again. This is what it looks like to follow Jesus as broken people who make great mistakes. We have to wake up every day and continue to choose to swim to this man because this is life or death consequences, both here and now and for eternity. Swim to this man and let him handle it. Let him take it. Your sin and your shame and your guilt and your past, let him handle it. Find grace in his arms. Swim to this man. Let me, let me pray for us. God, it is, it is crazy to think at times that the greatest mistakes of my life, the times when I feel the greatest amounts of shame and brokenness and disappointment and guilt, that in, in, in all of those moments, you meet me there and you love me there and you want me in your family even there. That I'm, I'm not the only one who knows the greatest mistakes of my life, that, that you also know the greatest mistakes of my life and yet choose to continue to love me and want me in that moment. God, allow me and allow us, those who call ourselves followers of Jesus, allow us to be people who every single day swim to Jesus, where we can find grace and we can find mercy and we can find compassion. God, don't allow us to be caught up in this fake narrative of you being disappointed and begrudgingly handing us mercy and grace. God, allow us to be people who swim. We love you so much and allow even this next phase of our service to be a good demonstration of how we feel about you and how we feel about what you've done in our lives. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.